Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. So if you've been watching the news, you know that there's a lot of crazy things going on in the world today um, with Ukraine and Russia in conflict being one of the biggest headlines. We wanted to release a special issue because this conflict over there is causing a lot of ripples across the world, especially in our ag commodity markets. So if you look at Ukraine and Russia, they represent about 30% of the world's exports in wheat. And what we've been seeing in the market reactions just shows how impactful this region is for even more than wheat in our commodities worldwide. And I think we're all wondering what this means for agriculture, especially as we approach planting season. But many farmers are also enjoying those price jumps. Today, we've got one of our favorite guests back, Ben Brown. It's been a while since we've had him on, so we're excited to talk to him about this issue. Ben, could you take a moment and introduce yourself? Sure could. And thanks for having me on. I really do appreciate it. So my name is Ben Brown. I work here at the University of Missouri in Columbia. I serve as a state ag econ specialist and work with the Food and Ag Policy Research Institute here at the university as well. A native of Western Missouri, growing up on my family's row crop and cattle operation, I had the opportunity to go back. And so, yes, if you're listening and wondering, I am the Ben Brown that was formerly of Ohio State University. Um, and still, there's a part of my heart that still still remains in Buckeye land. But excited to be back, excited to talk about this topic with you all, and I uh, look forward to the discussion to come. So, Ben, uh pre-recording, we were talking a little bit about some of the most impacted commodities, um, wheat, corn, vegetable oil, fertilizer, and oil, of course. So let's start with wheat, um, if we can do that. And first of all, when is wheat planted in Ukraine and Russia? Because that's probably what's driving a lot of this. Sure can. And for the viewers or listeners out there, probably the best way to describe Ukraine and even really Russia wheat production is to think of it in terms of North Dakota here in the United States. Very similar growing conditions, very similar timeline for when it's planted, when it's growing and when it's harvested, and also a very similar type of wheat. Uh, So when we think of Ukraine wheat and and just really wheat in general, let me step back here for a second and talk about wheat and why wheat sometimes is very complex. It, It comes down to the different classifications of wheat that we have. So we have soft red winter wheat there that is very common in places like Ohio, Western Missouri. We also have the hard red winter wheat categories that show up a lot in Kansas, Oklahoma, the panhandle of Texas. And then we have all the spring wheat crops, white wheat, durum wheat, club wheat. Uh, we, we even have you know, different classifications of spring wheat as well. So wheat is very complex just from the, the classifications it has, but then also the major players in the world. Uh, so it, contrast that for just a second with soybeans. You know, there's really two dominant soybean producing countries in the world, uh, the United States and Brazil, even though we could make the case that the European Union produces some soybeans and Argentina plants or produces some soybeans. It's mostly the United States and Brazil. Uh, when we think of wheat, there's some, some major wheat growing uh, countries, including Canada, Australia, the European Union, Russia, and Ukraine. And Amanda, to your point for just a second, when we think of the major exporters of wheat, uh, Russia stands as the number one exporter of all wheat classes together, and then Europe the second, Ukraine the third. And so when we're looking at, at this, this issue that we're dealing with in the Black Sea region or that's happening in the Black Sea, we're looking at our number one and number three exporters of global wheat. Uh, however, that's going to affect different wheat classes differently because, again, 
we have different demand signals for, for those. However, they all move kind of in tandem together. So if one goes up, they all kind of go up a little bit together, but predominantly it's those spring wheats, especially Durham wheat that's used a lot in pastas. Uh, that's, that's seeing probably the biggest impact at the moment. Wheat has been setting nearly record high prices, but corn and soybeans are moving quite a bit too over the last few days. What is causing the impact to those crops? Yeah, sure can. And it's all kind of tangentially related a little bit. Uh, we, we tend to see when, for instance, corn moves up, it tends to have an impact on wheat because of the, the cross relationships or the cross correlation there with with those two feed grain crops, same way with like barley and, and grain sorghum, right? We would expect that in feed rations, when one gets pricey, uh, producers or feeders start switching from corn to wheat and that increases demand for wheat. So we do see some lagging cross effects there. And then of course like corn uh, and wheat, we also have cross effects with corn and soybeans. And it's largely due to the fact that those two crops compete for the same acreage. And so if corn starts growing up and expensive, all of a sudden soybean producers have to really start bidding up the price to retain soybean acres. A couple of things I'll also point out too, and at least in terms of the corn category, is that that same region, uh, Ukraine and Russia produces about 19% of the global corn exports. So they are a, a large, a relatively large producer of corn. And so that's that's part of the reason why we're seeing some some impacts there, as along with those cross effects I've talked about. But then we're also trying to figure out the size of South America's corn crop. Uh, earlier, you know, last month, for instance, South America was a was a big factor when it came to corn production from the standpoint that the southern portion of their country, which produces almost all of Brazil's first crop corn was at a complete loss almost. I mean, just very dry and getting drier. A lot of those areas probably didn't get harvested. Some did, but major yield reductions in Southern Brazil. And that saw some potential upside to the corn crop. However, that only represents about 25% of Brazil's total corn production. Uh, they, they plant a second crop corn, which represents about 75% of that, that production. And so that's why we're not seeing as big. And Elizabeth, I, I know I took a big detour there to get to my point. But that's, that's why we're not seeing as big of moves in corn as what we're seeing in wheat. For corn, Brazil is still getting an opportunity to respond before the United States. They're planting that second crop corn right now. And so we're seeing a little bit of a subdued or suppressed pressure. However, corn still has to you know, increase, if you will, or has to is, is a relative term, I guess. But you know, wheat's increasing, and so it's pulling up corn as people look to switch out of wheat, feeding wheat and feeding more corn. Okay, so what's the deal with vegetable oil? Ha, huh, good question. <laughs> we don't talk a lot about vegetable oil. There's some actually some pretty exciting fundamentals when we think about vegetable oil. Let's, uh, let's step back here for just a second and, and consider what is vegetable oil and where what, what all feeds into vegetable oil categories. Palm oil is a big one, largely comes from Southeast Asia and, and is, a, is a major you know, source of vegetable oil. However, uh, the, the concern with palm oil all these, all these years has been in its environmental footprint, I guess is, is what I would say there. But we also have canola oil that's produced all around the world. It's produced here in the United States. It's produced in Canada. We have sunflower oil, which uh, is very predominant in, in that Black Sea region. In fact, Ukraine and Russia account for about 78% of total global or total exports from the globe. And so a major source of, of 
sunflower oil. And then when you start to think about how sunflower oil fits into the vegetable oil complex that also includes soybean oil, I forgot that was the fourth one I was going to mention there is, is soybean oil would also be a vegetable. When you, when you take that much sunflower oil out of the picture, and then you consider how big sunflower is in the global vegetable oil market, it has a big impact. So certainly we've seen vegetable oils as an entire complex trade at levels we've never seen before. And on the soybean side, our soybean oil contracts are trading anywhere between 70 to 80 cents uh, per pound for, for vegetable oil, some soybean oil in this case, and that's the highest we've ever seen for vegetable oil. And so a lot of, a lot of uh, exciting things, I guess, um, I don't, I don't want to say exciting because certainly what's happening in Ukraine and Russia is not exciting, but there's, there's a lot of fundamentals, very supportive fundamentals to that soybean oil complex, because not only do we have limitations in demand or in, in terms of supply, but we've also got growing demand for vegetable oil product or vegetable oil uses. And, uh, and predominantly, you know, here in the United States, it's, it's a function of renewable diesel production, production, creating new fuels for use. And, uh, and so we've, we've got increasing demand at the same time, we've got decreasing supply of vegetable oils, and that's causing the price of the entire complex to really rally. That's pretty interesting. That's probably helping drive, you know, soybean prices up as well, too. That is correct. Yeah, that is correct. So I know we're all pretty excited about the rallies we're seeing in the markets, but one of the top concerns I've been hearing from farmers is with our already high fertilizer costs going into the season, how this conflict is going to affect the supply and in turn the cost of fertilizer, especially, um, especially nitrogen. Absolutely. So we here in the United States, we've been experiencing high fertilizer costs uh, for a while. There's a couple of factors that, that play into that. Probably the biggest factor and, and producers certainly don't like to hear this when I mention this to them, but uh, fertilizer prices largely follow demand. And when we see increases for commodity prices like corn, soybeans and wheat, uh, that tends to increase the amount of acres we're willing to plant of those crops. And as a result, it increases our demand for fertilizer. And so it's, it's crazy to think about that, even with the high fertilizer prices record, you know, the $1,400, $1,500 a ton uh, for nitrogen, that we could even still talk about increased demand, but we can because the output prices have been so strong. So that's one factor. There's a number of other factors, including high natural gas, transportation costs. Uh, there's, there's not many cost categories to producers that haven't gone up. And we sometimes overlook the, the role that transportation costs play into, into both the production side or the output side of, of corn, soybeans, and wheat, because we've got to pay and barge companies and grain transportation companies have to pay for, for fuel to get our products up and down the river to the ports, um, overseas to international buyers. And so as a result of that, that, that tends to you know, have an impact on the output price, but it also increases the price for, for inputs like fertilizer. And so we've seen that and certainly then some of the, the challenges we had with COVID-19 and production issues uh, around the globe for fertilizer has, has created a, a smaller supply. And when we have increases in demand, we see these major run-ups in, in fertilizer price. For producers that were waiting to buy their fertilizer till this spring and the hope that, hey, I'm, I'm not going to buy fertilizer this fall. I'm going to wait till the spring. It's got to be cheaper in the spring than it is now. Um, I think what we're seeing at this point is, is that's likely not going to happen. And it's probably even extended. I was expecting maybe a softening in the fertilizer market late summer, July, August, September, somewhere in that time period. You know, I'm not even sure we're going to see much softness in the fertilizer market at that point, given some of these challenges that we're seeing overseas. 
Russia and Belarus, for instance, account for about 36 to 40% of the world potash production. Uh, so we're very familiar with Russia. However, just today, the, the United States, and, or excuse me, just this week, uh, the United States and the European Union put sanctions uh, specifically for fertilizer on, on Belarus fertilizer exports um, due to their, their partaking and support of, of Russian efforts in Ukraine. So uh, some major, major shocks and, and restrictions on global fertilizer supply, especially on the potash side, that's going to continue to push up all fertilizer co- uh, cost categories, including nitrogen, potash, um, potassium, the whole, the whole thing will be, will be increased as this this tension and and feud plays out. So certainly we're all feeling the impact of an increase in oil prices as well at the gas pump. Any additional thoughts there on how it's impacting farmers beyond the cost of diesel fuel and things like that? Similar to the transportation I mentioned, certainly diesel fuel is not just related to to getting product up and down the rivers and, and to and from farm gate. It also has a direct impact in terms of the the fuel that producers, diesel fuel producers are using to power tractors and equipment. Uh, And and that has continued to gone up and and will continue to go up as as Russia and Ukraine, you know, continue to remain locked in conflict. We saw the bent crude market and the nearby bent crude market trade above $110 per barrel. You know, the, the all-time record that was experienced back in the in the late 2000s uh, was $140, $140 per, per barrel. So we've, you know, we've not hit the same highs that we saw during that period, uh, but certainly these are much higher oil prices than what we've experienced in the last decade plus. And, and uh, as a result, you know, we continue to see upward price pressure uh, on, on gas pumps to uh, increase their prices to make up for the price that they're having to pay for the the oil. It's really it's it's spurred a great interest in states and federal governments looking at policy changes to help ease some of that burden at the pumps for consumers. A lot of states have have considered rolling back, and some have rolling back their gas tax taxes in the short term uh, to help alleviate that that burden on consumers. We've seen the federal government. Uh, announced that along with other countries that they would release some oil from their strategic reserves, that the latest announcement for for oil releases from the strategic reserve was about 60 million barrels. The world uses about 90 million barrels a day. Uh, And so 60 million just really isn't a lot when we think about uh, the the global demand for product. However, not to say it won't help. Uh, Certainly any help would would be a, a positive. And, and so the United States, uh, as a part of that 60 million barrels, is, is looking at releasing 30 million barrels and uh, put some downward price pressure. But just like any other market, uh, the market is sending signals for producers to increase production. And so here in the United States, we have seen some interest in, in increasing uh, our fracking industry, uh, opening back pumps and uncapping wells that had been closed during COVID uh, to, to increase production. Interesting enough, this week, uh, the OPEC plus countries announced that they had no plans to change their, their planned you know, production cuts. They've been scaling back their production cuts uh, as, a, you know, as a result of this increased demand from the globe. They re- announced that they have no in- intention of increasing production at greater rates than what they, they had planned. 
And so, in fact, one of the best lines or interesting lines I read in their announcement was that they believe that the global supply and demand of oil is relatively imbalanced. So there's no reason to change their plan. And I think many people uh, buying gas at the pump would say that there's there's definitely an imbalance when we're looking at a bent crude trading above $110 a barrel. Yeah, it's interesting to, to see how quickly they're reacting to get those prices back down for us. Hopefully it works. Are there any other movements in policy that you're seeing as a result of what's going on? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So to this point, uh, most countries around the world have, have responded with sanctions against Russia and, and participating countries, not that Belarus has, has uh, sanctions against it. To my knowledge, no one has, has done anything to China. Um, I don't think China has uh, you know, come out in support of Russia. Certainly, they've, they've helped aid in some small ways. Uh, but I don't think there's been any sanctions globally against China, but certainly against Russia. When we think about you know, policies that, that would happen here in the United States, it would, it would largely come in the form of, of export bans, uh, limiting product into the United States, cutting off purchases. But it definitely seems like for you know, portions of America, uh, those, those bans are happening organically. People just aren't buying the product. We've seen different states make moves to, to help limit the sales of certain products. So economic sanctions are, are by far the, the biggest tool that people are using at the moment. One of the interesting ones, and we didn't talk about this when we were talking about grain prices earlier, you know, when this all first started, the attention was all on nearby corn, wheat, and you know, soybean oil con- contracts. So the, the, the nearby contracts were the ones that were seeing the biggest impact. Because I think many people thought that this would initially be a very short-term deal that affecting grain flows. It would, it would shut down grain flows. We'd see these short-term spikes. However, now it's becoming apparent that'll, that as this continues, as this war continues, it's starting to have major implications on future production out of the region, production and trade. And one of the big ways that I think that that could ha- impact next year's production, and keep in mind, we're just a month, month and a half from, from if that, it might just be weeks in some parts over there where they'd be planting corn, wheat, uh, sunflowers, and with the economic sanctions that are in place in Russia or for Russia, a lot of those farmers in that region have lost their access to credit. So we, we benefit here by having you know, access to credit for operating notes. And uh, those, those producers might not have that flexibility this year. And, and as a result of not having access to operating credit, uh, choose not to plant a crop uh, because they can't bear the, the financial risk of that as well. So you know, those are ways that we're seeing uh, government policy kind of impact impact uh, commodity markets. Well, Ben, thank you so much for the information you've provided. Uh, this has been really insightful on what's going on, and I hope it's helpful to farmers out there who are listening to it. Before we close out here, what are some ways uh, farmers can follow you for continued updates on this issue? Yeah, well, thank you for the, the opportunity to be with you today and you and Amanda. Uh, so I, I'm pretty active on Twitter. <laughs> I do post things on Twitter. You can find me at Ben Brown MU uh, on Twitter. Uh, we also do a weekly uh, market update every Tuesday morning where producers or anybody that's really interested can go and subscribe market update uh, at Brownfield Ag News. 
Uh, we do that in partnership with them and it can be mailed directly to or emailed directly to inboxes, usually around 11 o'clock every Tuesday morning. Uh, so we do that in partnership. I do the green side. One of my colleagues, Scott Brown, does the livestock market outlook um, and that comes out at 630 on Saturday morning. So producers can get both if they would like. Um, but that's a, that's probably the best way to stay to follow me as we as we stay up to date on the market. All right. Well, thanks again to you and to all our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode. Hey, podcast listeners. Just a reminder to give us a like or subscribe so you know when we release new episodes. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to leave us a review also. We appreciate the comments.